Romans 7, we have gotten up to verse 7. And this next section here is um, certainly a unique section. It's ministered to so many through history. I will just say right off the bat, this is one of the more, again, kind of debated sections. It's not that there's a lot of views. It's just that many people take different positions. Funny enough, it doesn't matter if you're uh, more Calvinistic or Arminian. Those guys are split uh, all through church history. Christosom, Augustine, you can get different views. Calvin, uh, G. Campbell Morgan, Martin Lloyd-Jones, more modern guys. Piper will be on one side, Thomas Schreiner on another. You, there's really godly individuals who kind of see this passage differently. Uh, so I'm taking a shot at it. You know, really great, incredible minds through history. And there are three main views. Some people are going to see this as Paul walks through here, as Paul, as a Christian, giving us his experience in sanctification, what we've been talking about. Some people see it as Paul, as an unsaved person under the law, talking about his experience. And then there are others that see this just as Paul speaking as a general person, not really kind of giving his personal experience, more kind of focusing just on the law's relation to us, talking kind of in general. So I want to just touch on kind of each of those right off the bat before we jump into it so I don't have to kind of address it as we go through. First, I'll, I'll just say I wouldn't see this as the general description type of view, particularly because Paul is speaking of himself and has been through the whole book of Romans, not just in a general sense, in a personal sense. In verse 25, he will say a particular phrase, so then with the mind, I myself there, very specifically speaking of him, this is also used in chapter 9, verse 3, and 15, verse 14, it is a direct reference to him. So he is sharing us, sharing with us something about himself. So all the mys and the me's and the mys that we see through this section are not just general. They're very specific to him. That's why it's not just saying I. He's saying I myself, me, Paul. So he's sharing something personal. Everyone is also in agreement. In 7 through 13, the tense is there our past tense, then he switches in 14 to 25 to present tense. He's talking about something he is currently, has currently lived through or experienced. So uh, Paul is not sharing something, kind of a, a general hypothesis for all Christians. He's sharing something specific about him. It's a little more, uh, I think, of a difficult question as you read through whether Paul is sharing this as a saved person or as an unsaved person. Full disclosure, I'm going to say he's sharing these things as a believer. I'll tell you why. But the, the tenses, just so you can know, so you can think of these things personally. If you don't care, then just hang here with me for a minute. You shouldn't just trust what I say. You should be able to think and study these things on your own. The, tension, the tensions kind of come in these two spots. Verse 14 he says, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. Most people who say he is unsaved would say that verse can't be said of a believing person. And that's kind of one of their biggest hang-ups there, tension. On the other side, verse 22, Paul would say, for I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. 
And the people who say he's a believer would say, no unsaved person can say that. That an unsaved person couldn't ever delight in the law of God after the inner man. This must be a believing person. So uh, in 14, I do think there is scriptural reference to speak of yourself as a believer, as carnal, because Paul will tell the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 3 that they are carnal, that he must talk to them as carnal, still worldly, fleshly, not thinking spiritually, thinking as someone who does not have the Spirit of God, even though they're saved. So there's biblical precedent for that. I do not see biblical precedent for an unsaved person delighting in the law of God after the heart. The other kind of fear that people have uh, as they read this section and say it has to be an unsaved person is they're afraid that this, this life and the way it's described shows kind of an unbiblical type of defeat. Like a believer couldn't li- live in that position, just constantly defeated, which we would agree with. This, this shouldn't be a position where you live your whole life totally, uh, but I would say that one of the problems with that view is it, it ignores the note of victory that we do have in 25, where he talks about deliverance. It also kind of ignores the larger context, where in chapter 6, particularly verses 11 through 13, he's talking about a struggle, a struggle there, too. It's not like sometimes we talk like the struggle only arrives in chapter 7. It's just clearest there. But the struggle is in chapter 6, And the struggle is also implied in chapter 8, verses 12 through 13. So this whole section that's talking about sanctification acknowledges there's a struggle. And sometimes those commentators or theologians, I think, they make it a little too clear-cut where Paul didn't have chapters. He wasn't saying, okay, this is chapter 6, this is chapter 7. He was writing organically through the whole thing. This is a context of our sanctification here. And finally, I just would say the largest kind of difficulty for me as seeing this as Paul writing as an unsaved person is it does ignore the larger context that we've been talking about in the book of sanctification. Paul has stopped talking about unsaved people becoming saved, even the words kind of justified that we've been talking about, propitiation, redemption, those have largely kind of slipped to the side, and there's new language now from five to where we've covered, which is more about dominion, about service, about holiness, about uncleanness, about life, about death, things that would relate to a believer's sanctification. He's talking again about the power and presence of sin, not the penalty of sin, which justification deals with. So, uh, Paul, in his writings, he's always building to a logical kind of conclusion and culmination. The conclusion and culmination of this section in verses 24 and 25, when he says, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? He's not saying, who will forgive me of the penalty of my sins? You notice that. He's saying, who will set me free from the bondage of sin, the power of sin? It's sanctification, not justification. So, I'm joining the group of people as we go through here that see this as descriptive of the Christian experience. This is a believer, Paul, sharing about discovering that he still has a corrupt sin nature and that he's weak in his flesh. 
to do the things that he would want to do. You're, you can very easily become a person who's born again, you're forgiven, ready to walk in Jesus Christ, and then all of a sudden you realize, oh wait, I'm not perfect. I still have issues. I'm not totally sanctified. And that's what I believe that this passage is talking about. Funny enough as well that most of the people who would hold to the position that this is just an unsaved person, they all admit, but the Bible does talk about that battle in other places in Scripture, like Galatians, or, and, and they also admit this is very common to human experience. So, uh, you know, I think we're in good ground. Um, you could be a believer and hold the other position. So if you come up afterwards and say, no, Paul was unsaved, I'm going to say, great, God bless you. Um, but as we go through here, I'm going to see Paul as a saved individual working through these things. So, verse 7, let's begin. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would have not known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet it. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. So, again, Paul has been walking these. You're justified now. You're part of a new family tree. You have new peace with God, new access to God. He's working in your life. Those things aren't going to change because of the love of God how it's been displayed to you, even while you were a sinner. You have died to the old nature. You shouldn't be living that life anymore. You have been set free. You're not in bondage to it. You should surrender yourselves to God, and you're no longer under the law. So, the, the again, probably discussion he's used to having is people are saying, okay, if I'm dead to sin and dead to the law in Jesus Christ, then... Are those basically the same thing? The law and sin basically both wrong? And what Paul is saying here is, no, you're, they're not wrong. They're not one in the same. Certainly not, he says, is the law sin? Of course not. And what he wants to show is the fault of sin lies in us, not in the law. The law is not what's producing sin in me. The law is just revealing it and the fault is in me. Paul states the law is what brought sin to light in his life. So he says, on the contrary, I would not have known sin, but through the law, I would not have known covetousness unless the law said, you shall not covet. Paul read the commandments, and when he got to that commandment, thou shalt not covet your neighbor's wife, house, you know, donkey, we don't cover those, but you know what it's saying, possessions, those types of things, then he realized that he had covetousness inside of him. He didn't think that he did. He's, he's already proven that sin is present in everybody outside of the law. He did that in chapter 1 and chapter 2 and chapter 5. But what he's showing now is that Without the law, that horrible nature of sin wasn't as clearly known. The sinfulness of sin, he'll get to, wasn't as clearly known. The law doesn't produce it, it just points it out. F.F. Bruce in his commentary says, the smoker might forget he, how much he wants to smoke until he sees a sign that says no smoking. Then all of a sudden, there's something in us, right? So 
the commandment not to covet, he said, stirred up in me. I realized that it brought to light my covetousness, what was already there inside of him. So by forbidding what you and I can't keep ourselves from, the law proves that we have a sin nature, that we have it in us, and that we are in bondage to sin. And Paul's saying, it's, it's not the one creating it. The law is not sin in and of itself. It is showing it to us. It tells us not to do something, and we can't help it. So it reveals what is in us. The sinful desire was already there in Paul's heart. It was a seed that was there. Maybe it wasn't full grown yet. But even though the law pointed out it was wrong, and even though he might disapprove of it, it was there. It was evident. It was something that was in him. Now, verse 9, he says this. I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment, which was to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me and it killed me. Therefore, the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. Paul's basically saying, I was happy and I thought I was doing pretty well morally and spiritually. He was like, I, I thought everything was kind of great. Paul was a guy who thought he kept all the commandments, like the rich young ruler who came to Jesus. What more do I have to do? Jesus gives him some of the commandments. He says, I've kept all those from my youth. I, I'm doing pretty well. And then Jesus points out the spiritual nature of his idolatry to his earthly goods. Then he realizes he actually isn't doing that well. And Paul says, I was alive. I thought I was doing pretty well. And then the law came in and it killed him. It killed off all hopes of his flesh in himself. The commandments in and of themselves, he says, are holy and just and good. They are there to, to give life, to protect life in that sense. Right? If you walk through the, the Ten Commandments, they protect a person's life with God right off the bat, the first couple of them. They protect human life in general. They protect the life in the family, honoring your father or mother. They protect human life in terms of interaction, in terms of possessions, in terms of speech. There's, in terms of evil desires, like the law is good. Life would be better if we all kept the law. If from now on in America, thou shalt not steal actually happened, life would be better. But what Paul says is, they revealed sin in him. Even though it was good, the law wasn't sin. They revealed sin in him. And sin even blinded him. It was part of its effect to his own weakness. It was part of sin's deception until he saw how bad he really was. And he was forced to see that through the law. So he says, the law isn't the problem. The law is good. The commandments are good. They're just, but they revealed something in me. And because he was faulty, even his desires, not just his actions, before the law, he realized he could incur condemnation and death and judgment. He said, before the law, I was, I was good. 
Then it killed me. Sin is what deceived me, and it brought that death in his life. Now, he's going to move on here. 13, has then what is good become death to me? Is, okay, if the law still has a good place, is it only going to bring death in me? Certainly not. But sin, that it might appear sin, was, produce, was producing death in me through what is good, so that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. The law, he's saying, isn't our ultimate enemy. It still has its place. The law is for the lawless. It's supposed to point out sin. Uh, it's very interesting. He, he says that sin might appear sin and become exceedingly sinful. It's like he doesn't have a worse word for sin than sin. He's just he's like, sin is really sinny, you know? Like, it's just the law made it so evident that sin is sin. Exceedingly sinful. It, it allowed me to see that. It was good in and of itself. It was good that it does that. Jesus' life was the fulfillment of the law. Jesus' life was good. But, you know, if you hung out with Jesus for a day, you realize you were a sinner. <laughs> Not anything like that guy. There, there is something that w was made clear by the law. And he's like, no, it, it still has its place. For we know that the law is spiritual. It's literally the work of God and his Holy Spirit. But I am carnal, sold under sin. Here Paul gets to the problem for him and for all of us. This is, this is particularly, notice the we, for we know, that is Christians, believers, uh, especially in this day, because the Jew didn't know that the law was spiritual. They thought that it was very practical. It was still the letter to them. And Paul is saying, no, we, we Christians know that the law of spiritual goes even deeper than just our actions. The, the unsaved Jew didn't know that. They knew it. The law showed that both the desire and the act were evil. That was what got Paul. He thought just being a Jew and keeping the actions, well, if I didn't steal, I'm okay. But then when he realized covetousness, that's a... That's just a desire in my heart. How can I stop that? That was related to a nature that's unlike God. God's not covetous. It's not lustful. It's not angry like we are. It's not selfish like we are. He's not carnal like we are. Paul says the problem is that law... The law shows us we can't escape our sinful inclinations ourselves outside of God. And my problem is I'm carnal or sold under sin, not in the flesh as a description of life outside of the spirit of God. Paul is simply admitting I'm still earthly, fleshly, connected to imperfection. That is pretty big thing, right? This is, the, this is the Apostle Paul. To say this was not something that I think many of them might have been used to. Was that true of the Apostle Paul? Yeah, it was. Robert Govett in his commentary 
says, was that true of Paul? Certainly. He is not speaking now of the working of the Holy Spirit within him, whereby he was prevented from acting out the emotions of the flesh, but he teaches us what is seldom taught, that the flesh does not improve by man's conversion. A new principle is implanted, but the old is not removed. The new and old are at strife together. This is a picture of the conflict. This is part of our problem. We're still imperfect. All true believers, there is a time where we were only sinners. There is going to be a time where we are only saints. Right now, we're saved saint sinners, right? That's, that's the problem. That's the whole conflict of sanctification here. We're, we're not what we used to be, as it's been said, but we're not what we're going to be. And we're in a middle ground here. And Paul, again, has talked about, he talks about the natural man. There's place for this in the scripture. The natural man is the unsaved man who doesn't have any of spiritual life through the spirit of God in him. The carnal man is the believer who's born again, but is still living just on his carnal nature, his fleshly senses, the things that he had outside of God. And the spiritual man is the mature believer in Christ who's reliant on the spiritual life that God has given to him. And Paul is talking here about the fact that, hey, right now I'm a mixed bag. Like, I can't, I can't do anything perfectly. There will be a day when it's not like that. But this is where he is. There's an earthly work that we're connected to still. And there's a heavenly work in us that is real. And one day, one's going to be complete, but it isn't at this point. So Paul's point is, look, I'm carnal. I'm sold under sin. This is, this is what we have to deal with. The law is spiritual, and it gets right down to the center of things. We're still fleshly, and that shows that we fall short. Now, what he's going to do in 15 through 20 is give that discussion that is so very famous where he's kind of talking about both sides of himself. So in 15 through 17, he's going to describe his inability to keep himself from doing what he disapproves of. I, I don't have the ability to stop doing things I disapprove of. And then in 18 through 20, he's going to describe his inability to do the things he does approve of. Kind of both sides of the coin here. So let's read through here with that kind of in mind. 15, for what I am doing, I do not understand. That could be a t-shirt for some of us. For what I will do, that I do not practice, but what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will not do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Now if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it but sin that dwells in me. It's wonderful here what he's saying. 
Certainly, if we don't understand what Paul's been doing here, this can sound like a conversation between Gollum and Smeagol. That's not what's happening. You know, if you're Festus, you're probably looking at Paul like, okay, much introspection has driven you mad, Paul. You got to relax here a little bit. But I think this is remarkable because Paul here, at least I believe, Paul has given us a personal testimony of all he's been saying since chapter 5. He's, he's saying this is literally how it's worked in my life. And he's giving words to it. And I think it's because of that that this is ministered to so many people through the centuries. We could read that and say, yes, I get that. I, I feel you, Paul. I, I can understand what you're saying here. I have been there. So we'll read 15 and, and 16 again. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, what I wish to do, is yeah, what I desire to do, I do not practice, but what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. Paul's saying the wrongdoing that he disapproves of, he finds himself doing those things. I, Paul, if you said, Paul, thou shalt not covet, he would have said, yes, I just coveted something, right? That's the, what you, you, some of you are sitting here right now, and you're like, I'm going to have self-control tonight. I am not going to look at the score to the game, and you already failed, <laughs> okay? And, and some of you, I just put that idea in your head, and now you're going to struggle with self-control. Tim Patrick's raising his hand. He already failed. Because he's carnal, sold under sin. So the reality is we, we all have this, this, this life of imperfection. It works out in different ways in different people where we agree with the law of God. Paul says, when I find this battle in me, I'm agreeing that the law of God is right. It is saying this thing is wrong. And even though I'm doing it, I don't want to, it, I'm proving that it is still good and right. So my problem is not with the law. My problem is with me. That's, that's his problem here. And, and now we're going to see, and I love this part here, because I believe this is the beautiful part where he's trying to help these believers. Verse 17, he's going to say, But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. It, this could seem like Paul's just trying to throw the blame to some false version of himself. That's not what he's doing. What Paul is doing here is he is doing the thing he just told these believers to do in chapter 6, verse 11, which is reckon or consider yourselves dead to sin. And he is reckoning and considering the peace of himself that falls short as human that he himself judges along with the law as sin. It's not me anymore. My identity is now the person who agrees with the law of God, with Christ, with who he is, with his spirit in me. The spiritual part. The other part died with Jesus Christ. So it's no longer me who does that thing. It, this is now what I understand. It's no longer me who does it. It is sin that dwells in me. I am reckoning myself 
and he's instructing his believers to do this. Because, notice he doesn't say, sin used to dwell in me. I've now reached sinless perfection because I'm the Apostle Paul. Because of the sin, notice, that dwells in me, presently dwells in me. I am still imperfect. I'm still an imperfect human being. And our great hindrance in life, particularly sanctification, is something on the inside, not something compulsive on the outside. My problem is me. It's not actually my circumstances or other people. Blaming the other person just makes it easier. But my problem is me. That's, that's what the problem is. My temper or my selfishness or my covetousness, my sinful nature. We're not being forced into sin by demons. It's not some outward compulsion. Right? Most of us are not being drugged into the bar and having a demon shove a beer down our throat. Like That's not what's happening in our lives. It's it's our sinful nature, ourselves. But Paul is saying, I recognize that. And, and even these acts that I don't want to do, when I find myself doing those things, I know it is sin in me. It's not me. It's sin in me. I agree that that's wrong. I agree that that thought is wrong. I agree that that speech is wrong. I agree that that selfishness is wrong. I agree that my insecurity is wrong, my pride is wrong, my addiction is wrong. I agree with you, God, against myself. If that's true in you, that's the Holy Spirit. And I reckon that old man dead in Jesus Christ. Now, he's going to move on and continue that, kind of do the other side of the coin here. Verse 18, for I know that in me, that is in my flesh. Nothing good dwells, for to will is present with me. But how to perform what is good, I do not find. I want to do the right thing, but I am weak to do that. For the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil I will not to do, that I practice. And look, same conclusion now. Now, if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it but it is sin who dwells in me. Here, Paul, we find him kind of like those early disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus has to say to them, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. You wanted the right thing. They tried to pray with Jesus when he asked them, and they fell asleep. And he woke them up, and they fell asleep. Some of you are trying to wake up your friend that you came with. Say, the spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. It's all right. There's, there's a reality of that because of our imperfection. There's going to be a day in heaven where there's no disharmony. The strength in my body is going to be equal to the strength of my heart and my mind to pursue and love and worship and serve God. But right now, we are carnal and perfect. And Paul says, there's so much that I want to do, and I don't find myself doing that. I desire to do good, but I fall short. There's a fly in the ointment in just about everything we do. Again, the wonderful thing is the Bible says Jesus doesn't break a bruise reed. He doesn't quench a smoking flax. There's a little bit of smoke in just about all of our worship. He doesn't just blow it out there. 
right? There's, there's a little bit of sinfulness in just about anything we bring to him. There's something of us in it. But God can cleanse us. He died for those things. And Paul ascribes this weakness in his flesh to indwelling sin. Again, he reckons himself dead to that and alive to God. I think maybe a helpful question for us when we're doing this as believers, when we're thinking of these things, because it's hard to, hard to weigh out sometimes what's us and what's the work of God in us, is simply, like, where does this come from? Where is this desire coming from? You know, people come down here to pray. Uh, I'll often say, Lord, thank you for this person. I know Satan doesn't have him here, right? Who's, is Satan telling you to go ask for prayer in your life? Satan telling you to read your Bible. Satan's probably not telling you to go to church. Maybe if you have some evil motive or something, I don't know. But that's highly unlikely. Right? Where is this desire kind of coming from? Because he can convince us of other things. But Paul is saying, no, the desire, I see the desire to follow the law of God as from him. And when my weakness comes in and I can't hit that mark, that's my flesh, the sin that dwells in me. And that's no longer me. That's why he's going to get to there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. That's not me anymore. I now reckon myself dead to that. I consider myself dead to that. A believer is someone who loves the good that God loves and hates the evil that God hates, even if he's doing it even while he's doing it. But you can have a person that's living outwardly Christian, and really, they don't love the good that they do. And they actually love the evil they don't do, or they're scared to do. I've dealt with a lot of people who've grown up in the Christian world. And that's a lot of their problem, that they actually because they're, they're forced into scenarios where they don't get to choose for themselves. And they do religious-looking things, but they don't actually love the good that they do, and they just love the evil that they can't have yet. And when the opportunity finally comes, what's there proves itself out. But a believer who has the Spirit of God they love good even when they fall short. And the evil they do, they hate it. And that's why there's a conflict. And Paul brings this to a summation here in 21, where he says, so I find then, and that's an experiential statement. Paul is saying, I personally discover something. I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. Again, I believe only a believer can say that. I don't believe we have biblical precedent to say an unbeliever would say that. And 23, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. So he, here he has a summation. Here, here's the problem with sanctifying sinners, Paul's saying. 
that there is a law at work that whenever I'm trying to do good, there's, there's some kind of evil there. Whether it's in his mind or his heart or weakness of body, there's some kind of conflict there. There's something that's going to be an issue. And there's opposing forces now at work. There's the law of God, the law of the Spirit, which we're going to see just shortly in chapter 8. But there's also this law where sin is present. Not the Old Testament law, a law as kind of just a, a principle, something that's true. And just like in our world, you can have the law of gravity and laws of aerodynamics, which are, you know, the way air moves around something. And both of those can be true. Now, one can transcend the other. Right? We can fly in an airplane or shoot a rocket up into the air. Now, it doesn't mean when I'm on an airplane that gravity no longer exists or is canceled out. Because if I jump out of the airplane, gravity still exists. That law is still in existence, even though it's transcended by a different law. And in the Christian life, we're going to see there's a transcendent law in the Spirit of God. But that doesn't mean the law of sin isn't still there, that there isn't a pull in our imperfection, that there isn't still always some kind of evil present with us that had to be forgiven by the Lord or transcended by the Spirit. And Paul says, I've I found this. Here's, here's the problem. There's this opposing, these laws of opposing forces working in my life. And sometimes it can feel like if one, the law of sin is more powerful, it's like, is this other law real? Yeah, it's real. And even if you're doing really well and you feel like, man, I've never been doing better than I am right now, don't, don't think that other law is not in existence anymore. Right? The Bible says you you think you stand, take heed lest you fall. That law of gravity to pull you back, that's still there. So you and I love God through the Spirit, as he talked about in 5.5. We obey and delight in his law from the heart, as he said in 6.17. Yet we still need to present our members to him, as he talked about in chapter 6. And we're all in this battle that happens to believers because there are opposing forces in our life. There isn't a battle if you're not actually saved. If you're not saved, you're sold under sin. You're given to it 100%. If you're saved, there's conflicting forces. So, what does Paul say about that? Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Right? This is... This is, this is his real cry. Wretched has the idea, that word there has the idea of being totally worn out after some long taxing work or a battle. It was used not just um, in terms of like it's something that we, we dislike or look down on, but, but you're worn out is the idea. And Paul's talking as somebody that is totally worn out in this battle in sanctification. He's tired of fighting with himself. And that is often the time where the Lord comes in and delivers us. Right? The children of Israel at the Red Sea backs up against the wall thinking it's all over. 
That's when the Lord comes in and brings deliverance. Watchman Nee tells a story about swimming with some of his friends somewhere in a lake. And uh, one of his friends, it was a little deeper than they thought, actually started to drown. And he said he had another friend there who was actually an expert swimmer. And he was shouting, this guy's drowning, this guy's drowning. He said, the guy was just standing there. He said, so, or just, you know, waiting. So he said, I'm screaming louder. Go get him, go get him. He's, he's the expert swimmer. We're further away. He's closer. And he said, he's still just waiting there. He said, I'm getting angry. Like, what is this guy's problem? And then he says, when the guy basically is going underwater, he goes, swims over, grabs him, swims, takes him back to shore like it was no problem. He said, they got back to shore. And I asked him, like, what was your problem? Why were you waiting? And he said, if his energy wasn't exhausted, he would have drowned both of us. So there's, there's a scenario where <laughs> the Lord often sometimes lets us kind of figure things out that we need him. We throw a whole lot of effort and our own strength at things when we need to look to him for deliverance. This isn't the weariness of an unbeliever with sin. It's the weariness of the work of sanctification in a saint's life. When two great opposites meet, right? there's, there's a reaction. It's like those pictures of lava pouring into the ocean, right? A lot of steam, a lot of hissing, a lot of noise. Some of us in our lives, we make more smoke than others when the friction starts in our lives. And, and this statement, this seeking of deliverance, notice again, it's not for forgiveness from the penalty of sin. It is deliverance from the body of death. This thing that you and I are tied to that we can't escape from. That, that reality that we're still imperfect. And I think, this is where I, again, my personal opinion, I might disagree with some commentators who would say, well, again, we don't live here, which I agree with, in some senses, but I would disagree that in other ways, we do all still live here. Because no matter how spiritually mature you become, you're always running up to something in your life that is still imperfect. And I believe particularly for a guy like Paul, again, these weren't just words, I think he can explain this so well because he lived it. He powerfully loved God and gave himself to the Lord. And when you really love the Lord, you're, you're going to get frustrated because you can't love him as much as he deserves because you're weak. And at some point, you get frustrated with your own selfishness, with your own pride. You'd love to just worship him and never have to think about those things. You wish that you didn't get tired. <laughs> you wish that your mind could understand things better than they do. And I think we all have to admit, as the apostle is here, we're not totally free till glory. Measures of victory are real. And they're going to come, and they should continue, but they're not total until eternity. And I see the Apostle Paul, this is the agony of that predicament. He's a man with incredible spiritual hunger for God, and I think he hated everything that kept him from God. 
And it wasn't in the law, it was in him. And even though he was the Apostle Paul, he was still imperfect and unglorified. And he was forced day by day to realize that there's still some corruption in him. And he still needed Jesus to deliver him from himself. And I think for anybody who wants to walk with God and love him, that's going to happen. And it happens, like I said, everyone in their own way. Alexander White said, some have experienced more soul trials after their conversion than when they were awakened to a sense of their lost condition. Right? You, can, you can be a person who's saved, and your life could be radically changed in some pretty remarkable ways, and you could be doing really well, and then believers can get shocked when they realize this is still there. <laughs> I'm not sanctified yet. Not totally delivered from sin. For some people, that's too much. For Paul, it was difficult. But of course, he doesn't stay there. Verse 25, he says, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God. But with the flesh, the law of sin. It would be depressing if not for verse 25, and on, as he moves on here. As we said, he's, he's not going to stop there. But Paul says, Jesus Christ is the answer. Again, you think of Isaiah, who loved God. And then when he saw God, he realized he was a sinner in Isaiah 6. But God didn't leave him there. He came, put, put that coal on his lips, said, you're purified now. Peter, love God. But Jesus does that miracle, and he says, depart from me. A man of sinful lips. Jesus says, Nah, you're going to follow me. I'm going to turn you into something, a fisher of men. That, that for all of us, there's whatever step we're coming closer to the Lord, there's, there's a reaction of, Wow, I am a sinner. I am unlike you. But the beautiful thing is, Jesus doesn't say, Yeah, you are. Stay over there. He says, No, here's my love. And let me wash you and cleanse you. And I'll grow you and make you more like me. And then that's awesome. And then there comes this other spot where we're like, whoa, I'm not like you. And one of the problems is the, the shift, the mindset has to change where just like we come to Christ for justification through faith, trusting in his work, I have to come to him in sanctification in the same way, where we can get saved and then think, I'm going to do this stuff, instead of saying, like Paul does, who will deliver me from this body of death? We say, how will I be delivered from this body of death? And then people run to all different types of things. Paul's lesson in sanctification here is to teach us to look to the teacher, the master. Look to a person, and it's a central shift in mentality that I'm looking not to a method or an action or an effort or a religious secret, but to a person. We, we think, okay, if I read this next book, if I go to church, if I go to this next, you know, uh, workshop on this thing, if I get connected with this group, if I just find another worship song that really moves me, if I end up at this retreat or conference, this next thing is going to kind of get me past my carnality 
or this thing that I'm struggling with that I can't be delivered from, and we're looking for some type of method. And the church world doesn't help because they sell that stuff a lot. Right? I mean, like, you know, if David was a modern person, he would have wrote a five-chapter book about the five secret stones to help you kill Goliath. And then he would have sold, like, an extra, you know, for an extra thousand bucks, I'll teach you how to weave your own sling or something like that with holy leather. Right? And there's always something that, that people have a secret to get you to do this thing, how you can have victory, how you can take these steps. And, and there's a lot of just sham stuff out there that, that there's some secret method to make something happen in the Christian life. No, there is a savior. Even the religious things that are good, like going to church or reading your Bible or prayer, all those things, well and good in and of themselves, they can't be, we cannot trust in them for deliverance. I trust in Jesus for deliverance. That's the difference. At best, those things connect me with him. But my deliverance doesn't come from an effort. You want to know why? Because I'm carnal, sold under sin. Doesn't matter how much effort my old man throws out there, he's going to run out of steam. And then I'm going to be back saying, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then somebody's like, well, you know, you went to church once a week. If you try four times a week, <laughs> then you won't have lustful thoughts anymore. You're wrong. Or we begin to put our hope in another human being, even if it's a godly person. If, if you have any type of like spiritual life, people are going to try to connect other people with you because like you're the secret. And if they just somehow hang around with you, then, then their whole life is going to change. And then they get angry at you because it doesn't work or you're not giving them enough. Who shall deliver me? Paul says. There needs to be a change in mentality some fear this kind of attitude, but the reality is he's to be more trusted than my effort, than my secret methods, than what anybody else is trying to sell me. Self-effort is over at this point. Paul's a wretched man. My expectations are in another. And when you finally realize that, it is a sweet deliverance. I'm not working for anything. Again, God, if you don't help me, all I'll ever do is sin. I'm carnal, sold under sin. Who will deliver me? I thank my God. Christ Jesus, our Lord. He's the one who will do it. Brother Lawrence, he was a monk, French monk, um, 1600s. Uh, I believe, I actually think he was a soldier early in life. Around 55, he joined this kind of group, this monastery, and was a cook in a kitchen, I think a hospital kitchen. And he just decided, God, I want to walk with you at every moment of the day. I want to abide in you 24-7. Now, of course, his problem was he was a sinner. But he just made it his goal to just walk with God. And he became not, there's no... Twitter, no TikTok videos of him washing dishes, right? Nothing. There's no promo in those days. People would just begin to notice there was something different about this dude's life, and he would write letters. And people were so blessed by the letters, they began to, like, collect them, and people began to travel to talk with him. And 
They just wanted to talk with him about, how are you walking with God? This guy's life was sanctified in such a unique way. And he wrote a little book called Practicing the Presence of God uh, that's been around for hundreds of years because there's some really good stuff in it. Here's one of the things that he said that I think has been helpful for me. I hope it's helpful for you. He said, when I fail in my duty, I simply admit my faults, saying to God, I shall never do otherwise if you leave me to myself. It is you who must stop my falling, and it is you who must amend that which is amiss. And after praying, I allow myself no further uneasiness about my faults. I have no scruples. When I fail in my duty, I readily acknowledge it, saying I'm used to doing so, and I shall never do otherwise if I'm left to myself. If I do not fail, then I give God thanks, acknowledging the strength comes from him. It's a beautiful deliverance, isn't it? You just walk like that. He wasn't shocked when he failed. You see, I actually think one of the bigger dangers is when we're unable to see ourselves as sinners, right? This is a pretty amazing thing. The Apostle Paul can say this about himself. Some people are unable to see themselves as Paul does. They have to be recognized as Christians, but as remarkable Christians, notable Christians, really good, faithful Christians, really great Christian parents, really great Christian friends. And the problem is nobody's actually that great. And there always comes something in our lives where we fall short. And when we can't admit that, we begin to defend ourselves. And I've seen people do all types of horrible things to protect their Christian reputation. It's much more dangerous to live falsely in Romans 8 than truly in Romans 7. Because the person who can live truly in Romans 7 is going to find deliverance if they can truly say what Paul says here, then God's going to come through. He's going to deliver them. And if you've been trying to live the Christian life and you're totally worn out and you feel like you're about to drown and you've done a bunch of things that you thought would be the secret to get you to the next level and it hasn't worked and you're hopeless in your own strength and you're wondering, am I even a Christian? then take courage. You're on the right road. You're on the good and the right way. Because hopefully you're just about done with yourself. And death hurts a little bit, especially death to self and death to pride, death to our own reputation. That's, there's some pain in that. But it's where we need to go, because if I rest in the Lord, if I turn to him for deliverance, then that cry of bondage will not go unheard. Jesus is our deliverer. If that's how I feel, then the law of the Spirit is working in me, and deliverance will come to me. Even if it's in practical things, like, Lord, I'm just trying to seek you in the morning. I'm just trying to seek you. And just come to him and say, Lord, if you don't help me, all I'll ever do is fail. And I'm just going to do my best here. I'm going to give myself to you. Deliver me. And don't sweat it. 
um, the sin that you see, the weakness that comes, that you hate, consider that dead. Reckon yourself dead to that, alive to God. And give them all you got. And if it's like 10 minutes on the bus and then you fall asleep, God, I had, that was all I had. I, I loved you with all my strength and then it ran out. And that's the best you can do. And he already knows it. And he will be your deliverer. And then when somebody comes and they try to ask you what your secret is, there's only one answer. My deliverance came through Christ Jesus our Lord. By the grace of God. No secret, no how-to book. It didn't come through something. It came from a person, from the deliverer. So let's stand. We're going to pray. I'm going to ask that any of you here that need that in your heart and life in a particular way, that as we sing this last song, that you just commit yourself to the Lord. Again, he's your deliverer. You don't, you don't need me or anybody else in this moment. You need him. And you just truly say, Lord, I need you. You know that. Deliver me. And I believe he'll be faithful to do what he did for Paul. Lord, I just lift my brothers and sisters to you, Lord. You know where each of us lives, walks, breathes. Our downsitting, our uprising, you know our thoughts far off. You know what we have need of before we even ask you. And you are good, Lord, to provide what we need. And you are good to deliver us in our weakness. You are so patient. You understand that our spirit is willing and our flesh is weak. So, Lord, I ask that those who are here tonight that are just seeking you, that you would fill them afresh with your Holy Spirit and that law of the Spirit of life in Christ will make them alive to you afresh to obey you in the heart and to walk with you in a newness of life. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.